Alright, if you'll open your Bibles to the book of Colossians, and you will want to stay in Colossians, because I'm going to be working through the first three chapters tonight. Yes, we will, we will do this. Okay, so we're going to read in just a second Colossians 1, verses 24 through 28. So if you'll turn there, um, I don't remember what page it is, it's page... Um, yeah, 983 in that blue Bible. And so out of reverence for God's word as it is read, please join me in standing and hear the word of, hear the word of God. Paul wrote, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of his mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks Thanks be to God. Let's pray. You have said, be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. Tonight, Lord, we look at the way of sanctification And we implore your help in drawing near to you and growing more like your son. It's in his name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. You'll see the sermon notes in the back of your worship guide with the 457 quotations. That's a joke. It's funny. It's okay. So in the summer uh, between my ninth and 10th grade year, we had football training camp at Moore High School. It was the first year I was at Moore. And so we had to go training camp there. I'd never been to football training camp at Moore High School, but there we were. And it was grueling, gritty, and gut-wrenching. Football training camp in the middle of the summer, that was the day, the time when you did two-a-days during the summer, right? So early in the morning and then in the early afternoon, and, you know, we all died. We were, this is horrible. Uh, we would do all kinds of things, like wrap this rope around us that would then be tied to these huge tires, and we would have to run uphill with these tires and then also do the flipping the tire all the way up the hill, all those things, all that stuff. And then we'd have to hit the pads and do all of those football training things. So when you watch football, know that those guys have already lost about 300 pounds apiece, you know, and all the sweat and everything they put up with. It was grueling. I mean, it was, it was horrible in so many ways. But we were motivated, and we survived because we were motivated We were motivated to win. We wanted to be better at football than all the other teams. And so what we had to do in all that training is we had to relearn new habits. We had to relearn new habits of blocking properly, of tackling properly, of running. If you were running back, how to run properly and all those different things. And we had to train to get solid physically. We had to memorize whole new play patterns, right? Every school has its own set of play patterns and you had to wipe all those old ones out and relearn whole new play patterns that had new names to them and all that other stuff. It didn't mean, as we gained all those things, it didn't mean that we became flawless. We never became flawless, but you could see over time that we were getting better and better and we started winning games which gave us great satisfaction. It started making all the gut-wrenching stuff of the two-a-days and and all that, it started making that all worthwhile. It started feeling like it was paying off. It was a great satisfaction. Well, football training camp and all that came with it reminds me often of the way of sanctification. So I want you to keep in mind John Calvin's important statement in the Institutes, which is the impetus behind this whole Sunday evening series. And that quotation is at the beginning of your sermon notes. Uh, Calvin wrote, Christ given to us by the kindness of God is apprehended and possessed by faith, by means of which we obtain in particular a twofold benefit, a double grace, a duplex gratia. Notice that it's a plural singular. Double, plural, singular uh, is grace, right? So twofold grace. Um, 
Let me figure out where I'm at here. Hold on a minute. Okay, first, being reconciled by the righteousness of Christ, God becomes, instead of a judge, an indulgent father. That was the first four sermons in this series on justification, right? Put, put on God's good side because of Jesus, All right? That's justification. That's the first part of this double grace. But then comes the second part. And that is, secondly, being sanctified by his spirit, we aspire to integrity and purity of life. The reason why this is so important is that the two go together. You cannot divorce them. That's the emphasis of why I keep reading this, is for us to remember that, because some places in Christianity, they are thoroughly divorced, and all that matters is that you're justified, and sanctification has nothing to do with anything else. So you just take Jesus as your Savior, and never submit to him, or maybe submit to him later as your Lord. That's that dividing of those two. They cannot be divided. With the one comes the other. Another way I've often put it is that what God declares is true of us, he makes true in us. Does that make sense? Okay. So that's the reason why we keep talking about uh, bringing up this quotation. So last time, two weeks ago, we discussed what sanctification is. And that was very enjoyable. In fact, it was very touching as we, we went through uh, not only uh, positional sanctification, but we talked about also progressive sanctification, which is personalized sanctification. Remember, I gave you a thought experiment with Tony and Tammy, right? Do you remember, do you remember Tony and Tammy? Okay, thank you. All right. And, uh, and then we talked about par- being also paraclete sanctification. So we talked about what sanctification is two weeks ago. So tonight we're going to look at the way of sanctification, and I will not cover every aspect of this topic because we would be here for nights upon end. So I'm going to say what I'm going to say tonight, but it's in the context of everything you've heard said from here, from the pulpit here, and from classes here in the nine years I've been here, and all the years, many of the years before we even came, or back when Sean and Wes was here, even as far back as Mark and all the way back to Chuck. You've heard all these other things, so I can't say everything. You get my point? I'm going to have to narrow this down, or we're going to be here a long time. So I won't cover every aspect, but what I will cover will give us fodder for the future and some thoughts to aid us. We're going to spend our whole time, really, in Colossians. So you'll just keep your Bibles open there. We'll go one time somewhere else, but uh, I'll tell you where it is, and you can just write the reference down and look it up later. Okay, but we're going to spend our whole time in Colossians, so keep your Bibles open there. Now, I want you to notice, uh, oh, before I get d- dive in too far, I do want to make some recommendations on books. If you want to know more, I would, I would recommend, this is Jerry Bridges' The Pursuit of Holiness. I would recommend that. That's a, in fact, I'm going to quote Jerry Bridges in just a minute. Also, you would think that this may not fit, but it really does fit. Ed Welch wrote a book called Addictions, A Banquet in the Grave. I highly recommend that one. Chris Lungard, who used to be um, on the mission team in Ukraine, uh, we met him in Midland. He actually came and visited us in Midland one time. He's one of the missionaries we were supporting in Midland. Uh, wrote a book called The Enemy Within. We're gonna quote, I'm going to quote one thing from him, but I really recommend this one too. And lastly, uh, James K.A. Smith, You Are What You Love. Okay, It's a small book, but it's a great book. You Are What You Love. I recommend any or all of those books as you think about sanctification, okay? So I just wanted to put that plug in. So here we begin. We're going to look at Colossians 1 briefly here. Notice that before we get down, before Paul gets down into the nuts and the bolts and the washers, you will see that what he's doing here is he's showing how everything he will mention in Colossians is coming forth, verse 26, everything is coming forth from the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed. So everything he's going to say is flowing out of that, and that mystery that has been revealed with all of the riches of the glory to the Gentiles, verse 27, is what? What's the mystery that's been revealed to the Gentiles in verse 27? Christ in you, the hope of glory. Oh, there you go. We've got a segue to Wes's sermon this morning, right? So you'll hear some overlap here. We did not coordinate this at all. But it was perfect, okay? So notice that everything he's going to say is flowing out of Christ in you, the hope of glory. So you should be hearing everything from justification and regeneration is 
is primary or, or is first. And from that then flows all this that we're about to talk about this evening. Notice that Paul nowhere in Colossians, the reason why this is significant is because Paul nowhere says anything ever like, y'all just need to make yourself fit for Jesus. Okay, There's a tradition that actually promotes that. You have to make yourself, prepare yourself for grace. You have to prepare yourself for God to do a work in your heart. But Paul never says that. Everything flows out of the fact that God has already put us in good standing with him and has made us a new creation. And so that everything else flows out of that. Does that make sense? I mean, that's huge. Okay. So Paul nowhere ever says you all just need to make yourself fit for Jesus. What he's doing here is he is certifying that everything he is about to say in Colossians arises out of thankfulness. It's Thanksgiving Sunday, so I get to say this, right? But it's that's a big theme in Colossians. Chapter 1, verse 12, chapter 2, verse 7, chapter 3, verse 15, and 16, and 17, and chapter 4, verse 2. He keeps talking about our life, the way we live, is a Thanksgiving song. All right? So everything arises out of thankfulness, For what? For the whole God being wholly involved in saving us holy. Okay? I hope this is, help me out, make sure I'm making sense here, okay? So the old reform notion that comes up in the Heidelberg Catechism actually is this. The three G's, you remember this, I'm sure. Guilt, grace, and then what? Gratitude. Never forget that, that threefold paradigm that helps you to understand what Paul is driving at. Guilt, we're sinners and we don't deserve any good thing. Grace, we get the full-blooded love of God in Jesus Christ that we don't deserve. Our response, gratitude. That fits right in with Colossians. Exactly what Paul is hammering out here. So, this thankful way of sanctification, this thankful way of sanctification is the way of maturing, modeling, motivation, mindfulness, and meditation. And there were the five points. Are you ready? Got your seatbelts on? There we go. Crash helmets, goggles. We're getting ready to move here. Okay. So notice in verse 28 and 29, maturing. Maturing. Paul immediately moves to the aim of his pastoral work and notice that it is maturity. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone that we may present everyone, what? Mature in Christ. Notice that that's the pastoral aim of Paul. That's what he's writing for. And that's what he writes all of his letters for, is to aid Christians to be mature in Christ. Now, to get there, Paul knows he must preach Christ, him we proclaim, Verse 28, and so he then exhaustively pours his energies into this aim with gusto. The very gusto that God has put in him to do it. That's verse 29, for this I toil. That Greek word is interesting. It means for this I am exhausted. (laughs) For this I toil, struggling with all the energy that God has powerfully worked within me. But the point here that Paul is driving at and will come out all through Colossians is that the way of sanctification is actually the way of maturing. Let me say that again, okay? Because we often have this notion of of sanctification being, I don't know what, something else that's really odd in many ways. But if you put it back into the sense of growing in maturity, I don't know about you, but that makes it really, um, it puts it in a different perspective. Sanctification really is just simply maturing, growing up. And that sounds like Ephesians 4. You remember Ephesians 4? That uh, Paul, that God has given us apostles, pa- uh, apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers so that we will grow up in Christ and not be blown around by every wind of doctrine and social change that blows down the alleyway and so forth. That's my paraphrase. But, but that growing up in Christ, that's sanctification. Maturing, growing in maturity. Okay, well, to me, it may, it's, it's very meaningful. The idea of sanctification, the way of sanctification is the way of maturing. 
I find this helpful in getting us away from the potholes and the pitfalls of this subject that have come up over the last few centuries. If you think of sanctification, if you think of holiness as simply growing up, then you recognize much of what it encompasses. Think about you growing up. If you had kids, think about what that meant for your kids as they grew up. And you realize that maturity is actually the natural fitting thing to do. Does anybody want your kids to be perpetual children? No, because why? What happens if they stay perpetual children? If you, you actually have to force them to stay perpetual children. Did you know that? You actually have to, to fix everything so they can't grow up, to keep them as perpetual babies or young kids. What's that going to do for them when, it, when you're older and you die? Right? It's just sabotage them, right? So maturity is actually very fitting and natural. When you think of sanctification that way, it changes it. So, for example, as you think about maturing, you know that it requires things like taking ownership of your actions and their consequences. Right? That's just a part of maturity. When I was stationed at North American Air Defense Command, Colorado Springs, I was 18 years old. Brand new, young, they call us newbies. I was a newbie. Right. And so one freezing cold winter night, um, I was actually outside of the building. Inside the building were other security policemen and they were getting tired and sleepy because it was cold outside, hot, too hot inside. And they're sleeping. And so I thought I would help keep them awake. And so there was a, a glass between me and them. And the glass was supposed to be bulletproof. That's what we were told. So I'm brilliant. Trust me, I am. <laughs> And so I pick up a bunch of pebbles and I start tossing these pebbles at this bulletproof glass that's already in sub-freezing weather. And I'm throwing them and tossing them and try to wake the guys up inside. And all of a sudden I throw one and it hits the glass, boom, and it shatters. Right? It turns white. It shatters. I start to run away. I mean, this is the middle of the night. I'm running away. I'm on duty. I'm a cop. <laughs> I'm running away, and the guys inside come running out with their weapons all ready to go. Who was that? Who was that? And I finally went, That's stupid. I did it. Why am I running away? So I turn around and turn myself out. I basically I just said to them, Let me fill out a report. I did it. Let me take the hit. Because it was my action. I have to take the consequences, right? That's part of maturity. And so I did take the consequences and it was painful and humiliating and all those other things. It had cost me a lot of money. It's beside the point. But that's part of maturity. Right? That was amazing for me to do that at 18 because I didn't always do things like that. I'm just going to tell you. But that's amazing. And that's what you, makes you happy when you see your kids do that. When they get older and they do those things, you know, oh, they're growing up. That's right. So you think about normal maturity and it gives you a sense of what sanctification is. And so same thing with like um, determination or um, uh, catching cause and effect, beginning to recognize as they begin to realize if I do this, then this is the result. This is the effect. So I don't want to do this because I don't want that consequence. That's a grown up way to think. I actually know grown men who spent time in prison who never, ever, ever, ever seem to be able to grasp cause and effect. They, didn't, they just couldn't grasp why molesting my daughter or his daughter, it wasn't mine, it was his, his daughter would cause all society to scream for his execution, basically. He just could not grasp. I paid my time. No, you didn't. There's reasons why everybody finds you, you know, reprehensible in many ways, right? He just could not grasp cause and effect. Growing up, real maturity, as you know, oh, you can grasp cause and effect, things like that. I'm just, I'm just meandering a little bit here, but, but you get the point, maturity, what maturity looks like, that's the way of sanctification. Maturity is not accidental, but it's very intentional. And maturity comes with lumps and bruises. Therefore, in this letter, Paul shows the way that he fosters maturity. This is our whole goal, present everyone mature in Christ. And so he lays it out in this letter. For example, watch how Paul enthusiastically and energetically encourages these believers' development in this maturity. Look at chapter 2, just the first five verses. 
For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those that lay out a sea and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged being knit together in love. That's a maturity thing. Knit together in love to reach all the riches of the full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is in Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. Maturity is able to discern when somebody is uh, uh, um, deceiving them. Picks that up. Can pick up. You can pick up the soupy car salesman, you know, and he's, you know, he's not. Yeah, that's part of maturity, right? For though I'm absent of body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Notice that Paul drives here uh, to their development to reach the full assurance of understanding in order that you may not be deluded. Um, uh, your good order, your firmness of your faith in Christ Jesus. He's, that's his desires for them to be mature in Christ. It's very much like parenting, right? The shift for us, I don't know about anybody else, I'm not talking about anybody else, but the shift for us is when we finally realize it was somebody said it in an offhanded statement and it was just kind of like an epiphany moment. We're not raising children, we're raising adults. Oh, that's what we're doing with our kids. We're not raising them to be children, we're raising them to be adults. And when you know that, it changes a bit of way, the way you parent. You start wanting to do things like give them more chores and help them to learn how to do things independently so that they can they can grow up without you one day. Hopefully one day Derek will be there. We, we pray for him all the time in that regard. But it was a big moment for us. It was a shift in how we parented. It didn't happen overnight. It began to grow in us, and then it began to grow in the way we parented. It's a really important point. And so um, Paul is working at raising adult Christians. The aim is to present everyone mature in Christ, adult Christians. And so the way of sanctification is the way of maturing. And all the rest of these things, the next four I'm going to say, are all part of maturing. So part of maturity is modeling. So look at down at chapter 2, verses 6 and 7. Notice the language Paul uses here. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up, and is uh, uh, in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. There's the thanksgiving language, this thankful way of sanctification. So notice the modeling aspect here. He talks about as you receive Christ. Now, um, you're to walk in him. And truly, there's union language here and all of that. But at the minimum, it also is referring to modeling. You're, you're looking at him, walking in him because you're going somewhere. So you're modeling in some way after him. Okay? There's a modeling language there. So he goes on, talks about rooted and built up, established, all of that is in him. There's a sense of modeling. He is he's the model. Just as you were taught, and then Paul takes that modeling and he moves on in verses 8 through 14. And this modeling means that you want to remain free from bondage, from the bondage of deception. Verse 8, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy or empty deceit according to human tradition, etc. Because then you're moving from modeling Jesus to modeling something else that is less than good. Does that make sense? Okay, so modeling is an extremely important point. So following the path of our Lord, as you received Christ Jesus, the Lord, so walk in him. We're modeling ourselves after his likeness. And here's some good news, which is exactly what God is already doing in us. He's already making us more and more after the image of Christ. That's what he says in, in Romans. In Romans chapter 20, uh, 8, verse 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. And we like to think predestination only has to do with eternal salvation, that Jesus, that we're saved from our sins. But Paul doesn't go there in this point. In this verse, he says, no, you're predestined actually to be like Jesus. That's what he goes on to say. He says, 
predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Think about it. You're modeling yourself after Jesus because God the Father is already working that model in you, right? He's already moving you that direction. So you're not resisting God by trying to become more like Jesus. You're not resisting all those things. You're actually getting on with the program. This is what the Father's doing. So, yeah, I'm on board. Does that make sense? That's a, I think that's a, a better way to look at it. Because sometimes we think of sanctification as, oh, and instead, it's like, oh, I just, I need to get on board with what God is doing. He's already moving in that direction. And I'm, I'm becoming more and more like Jesus. Woo! Right? You can do the woo or not. That's up to you, right? But that's exciting. Okay. Well, it's exciting for me. Which is exactly part of what he's saying in Colossians. Uh, Wes had this read as the call to worship this morning in Colossians chapter 3. You'll notice that in verses 1 through 4. Colossians 3, 1 through 4. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on the things that are above, not on the things that are on the earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. So you're setting your minds on things above. Why? Because that's where Christ is. Because you're modeling. Right? There's that sense of modeling. That's part of maturity, which is the way of sanctification. I remember when I was growing up here in Oklahoma, there was an old anti-smoking commercial. It was a dad and his son, and they're on the train tracks. Nobody does this anymore, you know, but, but they were on the train tracks just walking down, and the dad reaches in his pocket. Maybe some of you will remember this. He reaches in his pocket, pulls out a pack of cigarettes, pulls out the last cigarette, crumples up the cigarette pack, throws it on the ground, shame on him, right? He lights a cigarette and smokes it, and then the son picks up the cigarette pack, opens it up, and looks inside, and the tagline was, like father like son. Does anybody remember that? Am I the only one that remembers that? Oh my goodness. You remember that? Thank you. So like father, like son, that modeling is natural. It's what, we're, it's what we do. It's how God made us. And so that's the point here. We're modeling after Jesus. As is often said, you know this line, this little proverb, imitation is the highest form of flattery, right? Think of it. Modeling Jesus is really a higher form of adoration and thanksgiving. It's a thankful way of sanctification. I often say in my prayers, not publicly, but in private. This is private. But I often say in my prayers privately, Lord, so give us, um, give us to sing your praises both with our lips and in our lives. Seeing your your life is a song of thanksgiving, right? And that's kind of the point. So modeling, that modeling Jesus is really a higher form of adoration and thanksgiving, which is what Paul's driving at in his point here. And so this gives us then motivation. This is also part of maturity, motivation. It's chapter 3, verses 5 through 11. So let me read verses 5 through 11. Put to death, therefore. The therefore is therefore a reason, right? Because of all this has been done for you, chapters 1 and 2, and because you will one day be with Christ in glory, chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. So put to death, therefore, because of all this that God has done for you and is doing in you, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry, on account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you two once walked when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have, notice the, the past tense here, an accomplished past tense. You have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. And so here there is no Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Paul's driving at here motivation. 
Motivation leads to intentionality. Sanctification is intentional. It's not accidental. I want to grow up. Right? I want to. I want to be more like Jesus. It's not accidental. It's intentional. We want to be more. Uh, be. Uh, we want to be what is in store for us. We long to be what God has declared of us. The fact that God declared that we're righteous. We go, that's amazing grace. And then we want to, then we turn around and say, and I want to be. Does that make sense? So that's, that's that motivation. It's intentional. We yearn to see holiness more alive in us. On uh, December the 18th, I get to do a wedding. Let me use this analogy. I get to do a wedding. I love doing weddings. I love to bury people, strangely enough. I love to marry people. I love to baptize people. So I'm going to do a wedding. And at the end of the wedding, after we do all the vows and everything, I'm going to take the, the man and the woman, and I'm going to say, now turn around and face the audience. They're going to turn around and face the audience. I'm going to say, now I introduce to you Mr. and Mrs. Mickey Mouse. I won't really say that on that day, but you get the point, right? I just made a declaration. What does that remind you of? A declaration of their new status. What does that remind you of? What's the word? Justification. Justification. I just declared them something new, Mr. and Mrs. But you know it's not over. What do you know has got to happen as soon as I say that? For the rest of their lives. What's got to happen? Yeah, they got to be married. Oh, there's an exciting adventure, right? But the rest of their life, they're living out what was declared of them. Are you picking this up? Right? And so they're motivated. I hope they're motivated. I, I did everything I could to help them be motivated. I think they're motivated. They are right now. But you know in your own marriage, there are seasons of more or less motivation, but there's motivation. That's why you're married. That's why you're still married. Right? I'm not talking about those who've been divorced or anything because there's various reasons. But the reason, the fact that you're together is because you're motivated. Does that make sense? And so there's that declaration Mr. and Mrs. So-and-so, and then the rest of their life living out what they are and what has been declared. That's very much, and they do so with motivation. And so, as you well know, same thing in marriage, no coasting allowed, no coasting allowed. John Owen was famous for saying this in his book, The Mortification of Sin, and I don't know if this is one of the quotations in your sermon notes, but just very pithy statement, the killing sin or it will be killing you. There's an intentionality here. And that's why Paul directs them here in verse five. What does he say? First words, and they are, by the way, directive words, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you? And then he gives a list, right? There's There's an intentionality, which means there's a motivation. It's just like football training. It's just like so many other things. There's a motivation. And so, my friends, this alerts us that the way of sanctification is often, most often, not always, but most often, sweaty work um, that often will leave us with bruises. When I was doing, uh, when I first started martial arts, Caleb was in there and Derek was in there and and we were doing martial arts, we had to learn whole new forms of things. We had to learn new, new strikes, we had to do strikes and blocks and all those things, and then we got to spar. And that was the best, except when Caleb and Derek sparred. That was terrible. <laughs> but we would spar. I would end up sparring the, the, the uh, instructor who owned the school, Mr. Green. And we would spar. And I mean, he could just wipe. It's just like Chuck Norris. He could just wipe me up with a mat. All right? It'd be, it was just over. But he would let me throw punches and so forth because I had to learn how to do punches and blocks and those things. You have to do it in real time. But after a while, he'd kind of got, he'd be like, okay, you're doing too hard, too much, too fast. You're acting like a little puppy, you know? And so then he would turn around and do a spinning back kick. And we had no body armor. And he would hit me right in the solar plexus. And I would lose my breath. I mean, it would just close me down for about two minutes. And I'd walk away with a bruise. And I learned my lesson. Right? It was painful. But I got the point. Right? Got to guard better. I need to protect myself better. You know, all those things. It's the same kind of thing as you think about um, sanctification, the way of maturity. My friends, since practice makes permanent, practice does not make perfect. If you practice wrong, you will have 
wrong permanently, right? So since practice makes permanent, you're working at changing practices. But you're changing practices because why? Because you love, you have a love for the desired outcome. You change practices because you're motivated. You have a love for the desired outcome to be more like Jesus. To steal the title of a book whose author stole the title, the phrase from St. Augustine, you are what you love. You are what you love. Motivation spawns movement, and though that movement can may be exhausting at times, it may be frustrating, it may momentarily suck the pleasure out of your soul. In the end, as you score points, as you grow, uh, 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 there's this growing sense of satisfaction that escapes your lips with a sigh of relief and a quiet doxology, something like, thank God I'm finally getting better at this, you know, that kind of thing. It's very much like learning piano. I'm sure when Denise started playing piano, it was not an easy road to hoe, right? And you had to, you were motivated and you had to stay at it. And the more you played, the more, kind of Wes's idea about trumpets, the more you played, the more you realized where you messed up because your expectations changed, because you are getting better and all those things. It's the same thing with choral pieces. When our choir and the acapella choir get in and start singing brand new stuff, I mean, they're able to do those things because they've got this practice. They're getting better and better in so many different ways, but they see there's a satisfaction in doing that, but then they see clearly all the glitches and the hiccups that they did. They stare them in their face, and yet there's a sense of growing satisfaction. They're motivated to do that um, and so on. So this motivation then spurs on our watchfulness against laziness because laziness, coasting, becomes a co-partner of temptation and sin. Laziness becomes a co-partner with temptation and sin. So here's a quotation you do have in your sermon notes from Chris Lungard. I think he rightly notes, quote, Indwelling sin takes advantage of our natural laziness and negligence in spiritual things, enticing us to lay aside spiritual duties one by one. If you want examples, think of David. David was not a young spring chicken when he got his eyes on Bathsheba. He was at a stage of life where his troops had told him to quit going out to fight because he was too old to fight and was actually endangering himself. So now he's at home doing nothing all day long and he glances over and there's Bathsheba. Think about our Old Testament reading of 1 Kings chapter 11. You're probably wondering why in the world did Bill read 1 Kings 11, you know, when did Solomon, now Solomon had built up his temptation, let me just say that, because of his practices for years, but notice that the writer of 1 Kings tells you when Solomon caved. When was it? When he was old. I tell this to Wes, I talk about this just recently, a little more often. I don't know about you, but I find the temptation more real as I get older to coast. I've had all this stuff. I've done all these things. I've done this. I've done this. I've done this. I've been committed, 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 committed. Surely I can kick back and take it easy. And that just then becomes an open door for the temptation to come in. Motivation, this motivation flowing out of the Christ in you, the hope of glory, this growing up, maturing in Christ, this motivation says, you know, I'm going to work against this laziness or this coasting. I can't do that. And so then um, motivation requires mindfulness. Mindfulness. Now look at chapter 3, verses 12 through 15. Notice what Paul goes on to say here. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts. Now listen to that for a minute. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. And then he goes in to tell you what to put on. But notice where he begins. Put on then as God's chosen ones. You're already God's chosen ones. Not only that, he mentions two other things about them. What are they? Holy, right? We talked about positional holiness. Holy, already in good standing with God. And secondly, already what? Beloved. You're already loved. You're deeply loved. Proof, Jesus died for you, etc. Right? So put on then. Here's who you are. Be mindful of who you are. You are already God's chosen ones. You're already holy and beloved. And so as those people whom God has made you to be, therefore put on 
Paul says, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord is, as the Lord has forgiven you, being mindful. Being mindful. As the Lord has forgiven you, you forgive others. Oh, and above all these, put on love. Why would he say put on love? Because you're already the well-loved people of God. Beloved, right? So above all these, put on love, which binds everything together. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called in one body, and be thankful. So in this passage, Paul's mindfulness is very positive. He has a very positive aspect he's laying out here. It's recollecting who you are, whose you are, and why you are. I think that's probably where most of us struggle, remembering who we are. When we face temptation and all those other things, who are you? God's chosen ones, holy and beloved already. And so that's that motivation, but that mindfulness feeds that motivation and all that maturity. That mindfulness, who you are. Whose you are and why you are. You say that to the kids all the time. Remember who you are, whose you are, and why you are. And so Paul's point here is gospel serious and gospel sensitive. So just look at the rest of the verses there, verses, verses 12 and following. You can't miss it. Gospel sensitive, gospel serious. It's because of what God has already done, then this is your response. And it's this thankful way of sanctification. All right. I'll beat this horse deader than a doornail. So let me move on. So it's about being mindful, not mindlessly muddling through life. But this gospel serious, gospel sensitive mindfulness requires a mindfulness also in another direction that Paul is hinting at here, but James describes in greater detail in James chapter 1, verses 13 through 15. You want to write that reference down. James 1, 13 through 15. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. Notice the, the idea of being mindful of how sin, how your own desire tempts you. Being mindful of sin and temptation how those things work out. Here's what I mean. I'm going to give you an example here. Let me put it in the words of Jerry Bridges from his book, The Pursuit of Holiness. He said this, and you have this quotation in your sermon. We should also study our sinful desires and how they rise up against us. There have been times when I've been counseling someone and I will ask them, they're talking about maybe their own specific temptation or whatever, and I'll ask them, well, what do the voices in your head say before you do those things? Usually, they're like, oh, what voices? Are you going to turn me into Bill Rui? No, no, right? But what do the voices say in your head before you do that? People do look stupefied. When I ask a question, but the simple, what I'm simply asking is mindfulness questions. What I'm asking is how, how is it that you allow the voices of desire to persuade you to give in? Because that's instructive. That's very helpful. That mindfulness actually helps you. This is why James writes that out the way he does in James 1. It helps you to actually fight temptation. When you realize the tricks you play on yourself. We don't need the devil to tempt us. We take care of it ourselves. But when you realize the tricks you're playing on yourself, it actually gives you aid in fighting temptation and sin. That mindfulness is extremely important. So, which leads us to another question. How do you know then when desire, because not des desire is not necessarily wrong, right? You desire for love and affection and food and good wine or cheese or whatever, right? It's not wrong in of itself until it dominates you, until it rules you. Ah, now we've got a problem. So when do you, when, here's the question, how do you know when desire is becoming a sinister tyrant, a dominating oppressor or a sensual seductress. It seems to me that Ed Welch in his book on addictions gets it right. Here's what he said. You have this quotation, your sermon is too. An earthly desire that does not take no for an answer is a lust that surpasses your desire for Jesus himself. A desire that will not take no for an answer is a lust 
that surpasses your desire for Jesus himself. I appreciate the way he wrote that because that's what's happening. You're placing your desire and satisfying your desire above Jesus when we do that. Okay? So we need to learn to see our inner self-deception so that we're wiser and so that we can then apply the gospel-serious, gospel-sensitive remedies to our rascally hearts. Remember who you are, whose you are, why you are. There's the gospel remedy. You're applying that. So why do I want to go that way? No, I'm not going to go that way. There you go. So one way out of many ways that we can be aided in our mindfulness, both the positive and the more temptation, perceptive way, is through meditation. So look at verses 16 and 17. We're almost done. Hang in there. I told you it was going to be one of these. Anyways, verse 16 and 17. Notice what Paul then says. Remember, he's aiming at maturity in Christ. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God and whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So meditation. Now look, what I'm going to, about to say here, what I'm about to mention does not excuse us from the communal life of the church nor the corporate means of grace, the word, the sacraments, and prayer. Those things are essential in our growing and maturity. I'm not, gonna, I'm, not ex- I'm not excusing us from them. I'm just assuming you're already in that because you're here at church. All right? But Paul, and Paul has church life really heavily in mind here. You see that when he says in verse 16, we're teaching and admonishing one another, another etc. and so forth. But... Um, what I want to drive at is this, taking a chosen to focus on meditation because you already have the corporate, congregational, communal aspects going on for you. But one area where many believers find what they find difficult is meditation. What do I mean by meditation? The regular reading of Scripture, the regular reading of Scripture, pondering Scripture, memorizing Scripture, praying Scripture. Notice how Paul begins in verse 16. What are the first few words? Let what happen? The word of Christ dwell in you richly. Let the word of Christ dwell in you. Take up its residence in you. Put its mailbox address on you. Right? Bring in all the utilities right there in you. In other words, to dwell in you. Take up its abode and set up its house in you. Let the word of Christ dwell in you a little bit. Is that what Paul says? No, richly, right? Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. And in the Greek, this is a directive. It's something like this. Make sure that you have the word of Christ dwelling richly in you. And so part of having the word of Christ dwell in you richly does have to do with fellowship in part. And so unfortunately, many churches you will find today make the public reading and the proclamation of Scripture a less, less than a priority, and that's sad when that happens because they're actually hurting their congregations. But for all of that, think of this. You and I, in our society right now, we live in an era where the Bible and Bible apps are overflowingly plentiful. Anyone and everyone can get a Bible and a Bible app, okay? Everywhere. You can get it in Africa, the deepest, darkest parts, if you just have a cell phone or iPhone or smartphone. You can actually do that. So we have more than all of our reforming forefathers ever thought would ever happen. It's amazing. The problem is, is that Bible literacy is significantly decreasing. The more we have, the less people are retaining because they're not reading. Each of us needs to spend time reading Scripture, but we also need to ponder and pray Scripture. I gave you an example this week. If you've got the, if you can, if you pick up the, pat, the, the congregational letter, I gave you an example, one example of how I did that this uh, last week when looking at Hezekiah and Isaiah 36 through 38. I did that with intention, knowing I was going to preach this sermon. I wanted you to get that so you'd actually have an example of how to, of actually reading and then pondering and praying scripture. That's part of letting the word of Christ dwell in you richly. It's amazing how doing so aids you in your Christian maturity. Many times, simply pondering Scripture after reading it has caused me to reassess my own approach to circumstances and even to see how pursuing a specific course of action would lead me into sinful actions 
and reactions. And on top of that, memorizing God's Word. Memorizing God's Word, actually taking it and memorizing it, forces me to meditate on it. I don't want to, this is not bragging, okay? I just want to give you an example. These are my Bible memory cards. I take these and go, when I run and use these and go over and over and over. I mean, I've been using those for years, but it, it makes me, while I'm out running, stop and actually think about what I memorize. I have to take it apart, phrase by phrase, and, and, and process it. And that in itself leads me in prayer and leads me to reflect on a course of action, courses of action, and so forth. Memorizing God's Word. Um, Pastor Wes and I, we spend every morning that we're together, reading the Bible together, discussing the passage briefly in morning prayer. We also work, if you go in my library, you'll see it on the whiteboard. And none of this is bragging. I'm just using this as an illustration. Does that make sense? We have on the whiteboard, we have a verse we're working on right now, Luke 16, verse 15. Right? It's up there so that we're memorizing it together because we know we, we, we need the word of Christ to dwell on us richly because that's part of us maturing in Christ, which is where we want to be. Okay. And so all of that is with a view to maturing and the way of maturity, and the, which is the way of sanctification. That's why Paul then ends up here where he does in verses 16 and 17. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God the Father through him. And so through this lesson, though it is not exhaustive, though you may be exhausted, Hopefully, you can see that the way of sanctification includes maturing, modeling, motivation, mindfulness, and meditation. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for the fact you are already working in us, growing us more and more to the image of Christ. Lord, we, we want to be grown up. We want to grow up in Jesus. We pray that you would help us, that you would help us with the motivation, the modeling. Give us, give us those moments where we see things getting better with us, not so that we can brag, not so that we can walk around strutting around, uh, thumping our chests, but so that we will see where we have also failed more, that we may actually work on those things. Help us, Lord, as we face temptation. Help us to be mindful. Uh, Help us to be mindful of who we are, whose we are, and why we are. We pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.